your life and it's ending one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Ideas are brittle. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. In today's episode, I sit down with Andrew Huberman. Andrew Huberman is the professor of neurobiology at Stanford University School of Medicine, where he directs and oversees the Neural Vision Lab, a team of exceptional scientists working to unveil the mysteries of brain development, function, and health. A widely sought-after speaker, Andrew is renowned for translating otherwise complicated facts about neuroscience into a wide range of public audiences and has delivered more than 100 seminars at top universities and symposia around the globe, including Harvard Medical School, Yale University, the National Institute of Health, and the Max Planck Institute. Andrew Huberman is one of the best in the world at biohacking the brain for improved cognition and processing speed. In fact, we got into so many amazing biohacks and topics in this interview, we decided to turn it into a full brain biohacking course, and we flew Andrew out to Boise, where we sat down for almost six hours and put together some of his best strategies and some of the things that we both do on a daily basis and a weekly basis in order to optimize cognition and mental health. Today's show is chocked full of golden nuggets you can put to immediate use in order to give yourself more brain power and biohack your cognitive function. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Andrew Huberman. Hey, everyone. I know you'll enjoy the interview. If you'd like to learn more of my top biohacking secrets, get a free copy of my best-selling book called The Biohacker's Guide to Upgraded Energy and Focus for free at biohackersguide.com. It's over 500 pages of my top biohacks, and I'll send it to you for free if you cover a small shipping cost. Get your free copy at biohackersguide.com. All right. I'm here with Andrew Huberman, professor of neuroscience and ophthalmology at the Stanford School of Medicine. He's an international worldwide expert in brain function, health, and disease. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about how you went down the path of getting involved in neuroscience. I've always had an interest in biology. I love animals. I love animal behavior. And I've always been really struck by how from a very young age, how certain animals are so highly specialized for performing certain behaviors. As a young male, I was particularly entranced by hunting behavior and predatory behavior in animals, also camouflage behavior. I just love that stuff. I I devoured it in my books and my reading and the uh, shows after school that were on animals or animal behavior. I just uh, couldn't get enough of it. And then eventually um, I developed an interest in biology when I went off to university um, I'd taken a lot of classes. To be honest, I, I wasn't a particularly motivated um, student. I, I enjoyed some of my reading for English classes and writing. But when I took a class in neurobiology, this was at University of California, Santa Barbara in the early 90s, um, I learned something incredible, which was that a lot of the misfortune that I had seen uh, among friends and a lot of the misfortune I had observed in the world, like addiction, I had a good friend commit suicide, a good friend... Um, become schizophrenic, you know, just a number of things. I had a number of friends who thrived and did well, of course, but I was really struck by uh, the idea that the brain or something about physiology merged with psychology. At that time, there was less of, a, of an understanding that the two things could be one and the same, but that could really impact different life outcomes. So for instance, um, 
I never had much of a desire to drink. Uh, I could drink alcohol or not. Uh, nowadays, I don't, but it never really felt like a, a strong drive for me. Whereas I had friends who it seemed like after one drink, it, they were just compelled to drink as often as possible. And, um, and that just seemed interesting to me. And this course taught by an absolutely magnificent professor uh, sparked an interest in how the brain worked that I think went way back in, um, to my childhood, wanting to understand behavior, wanting to understand thoughts and emotions. And I started working in his laboratory and I discovered a real love of doing experiments with my hands. I loved the idea that you could test hypotheses in very rigorous ways. I love the publishing process. I love making figures. I love, um, I, cause I have a little bit of an uh, aesthetic sense and an artistic interest and I loved writing and communicating my ideas. And I thought this is just the best profession in the world. Um, I can't believe they would pay me to do this. And so I went off to graduate school at Berkeley and then UC Davis did a postdoc uh, at Stanford ran a lab at UC San Diego and the Salk Institute for a long time. And uh, now my lab, as you mentioned, is at Stanford University School of Medicine. And so I just fell in love with biology and, and in particular the biology of the brain and behavior. That's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. I, I can't get enough. Based on where we're at with the current medical science and your understanding of, of human physiology, how would you describe the way that the human brain works and operates? It's a great question. Well, first off, I want to say that we are in a particularly exciting time in the history of brain science. We are really at the tip of the iceberg in terms of beginning to understand at a, at a really mechanistic level how the brain works. But let me just say something about the brain that which definitely solidifies my optimism that we are going to understand, quote unquote, how the brain works in the not too distant future. So the brain is an organ like any other organ in the body, like the liver or the lungs or the heart, but in the sense that it has parts, those parts are called cells, and those cells are connected in very deliberate ways during development in order to allow the brain to do all the amazing things that it does. And it's what the brain does is nothing short of miraculous, whether or not you're talking about a small animal brain, a dog brain, or a human brain, it's just absolutely spectacular. If we can understand what those parts are, that is, understand how they're shaped, what they do, and how they're connected with one another, then what we will effectively have done is decipher the logic of how the brain works. And that's possible in the same way that you can decipher the parts and logic of how the heart works. And that's been essentially accomplished. I mean, there's still some mysteries there, but it's mostly been solved. The brain, on the other hand, uh, we're still working out the parts list, and we're still working out the so-called connectome, the ways in which those parts are connected. But there's some basic principles of how the brain works that I think everybody accepts, and that I think um, we could probably appreciate better, and some of people kind of into this better than others. So um, for me, when I sit back and I think about what do we know about how the brain works, what, what's for certain, I essentially divide the brain into three parts, um, three major systems. Now, you've probably heard many times in, you know, in different forms you know, about the lizard brain and the evolved brain, and people will talk about those things. And that's one useful framework for thinking about how the brain works. I like to think about the brain as having three major tasks. So there are, there are circuits. And when I say circuits, I mean cells in the brain that are connected to one another that do things. And those circuits are designed to do things like control your breathing, control your digestion, uh, ensure that if you walk around a corner and you see a very large dark object that your heart starts beating fast and that blood is shuttled to your, uh, and glucose is shuttled, shuttled to your muscles and they get out of there quickly. Um, these are highly evolved systems. That, that's what most people talk about when they talk about the lizard brain or the more primitive brain. That's wonderful. Um, that that's, We're all grateful those systems are in place. Without them, we'd be dead. And at the same time, there's a second level, 
which sits still below our level of consciousness, which are our memory systems, which we're constantly pulling from. Now, those memories are generally laid down in early development in a stage that's kind of generically referred to as the critical period, although the critical period can mean many things. So, um, and that mem- those memories can include both thoughts and emotions. Like when I walk outside, if I see a very large dog and that dog is my bulldog Costello, I feel good about it. And I generally feel good about all dogs. However, if I'd been bitten by a dog when I was younger and I had a bad experience with dogs, I might have a fearful response. So there's, some, there's nothing innate about my response to dogs. It's been learned. So there's a memory system. But what a lot of people forget is that a lot of our memories are motor. So we have a lot of emotional memories. We have a lot of cognitive memories that are just really deeply etched in our brain. You know, if you may you know, have gotten sick, if you ate a certain food, now you see the food, you feel sick. That would be a sort of emotional memory of an experience. We also have a lot of just motor memories. Your ability to walk is an excellent example of a a well, uh, heavily uh, etched uh, motor memory that you picked up during development, as well as your ability to ride a bicycle. Uh, And for instance, all the sorts of motifs, as we say, which are simple repertoires that are engaged when certain things happen. Like when you go to the gas station, you start filling your car, you're not really thinking about how to do it. There's a fixed sequence of things that you picked up during memory. So that's the second level. And, and then there's the third level, which is the high level cognition, which calls on language ability, your ability to synthesize ideas, to create and imagine new things that may not even be in your world yet. You know, if we sat, we could do an experiment right now where we engage that part of our brains where if we decide to close our eyes and say, okay, imagine, uh, a device that still hasn't been developed that would do something really useful that you would love. And there's no limits. You can just, you know, maybe something that would, uh, you know, strip all your, your body fat off and increase your muscle or, or would endow you with the ability to speak a, a new language, you know, immediately. How would, how would that work? And so you're imagining something that doesn't exist. You know, my dog Costello, he doesn't do that. He doesn't abstract things. Costello doesn't plan and organize. He didn't say, okay, you know, 2016, 50 rabbits this year. That's my goal. You know, he just, but if he sees a rabbit, he takes off after it. You know, incidentally, if he gets one, he doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't kill them. He just stands there and looks at me. But, you know, so the planning and organization, so that's the third level, okay? And the last point I'd like to make is that these levels interact constantly in very interesting ways. They control each other. If I make your heart rate really fast, you, for whatever reason, it's not unlikely that you'll start to think about stressful things unless you've associated a faster heart rate with something pleasurable like an exhilarating run or an exciting concert or something like that. So the levels are constantly interacting. But the, the final thing I'll say about this is that your brain is a map. And it's a map of your experience. And everything that you say and do and think and all your behaviors are filtered through that map of your experience. And the wonderful thing about that is that it's your map. It's a customized map. And you can recustomize that map if you do certain things. And that's a lot of what my interest in biohacking is about, my interest in studying how we can change our, our brains. It's really uh, an amazing organ, just, just as we can change our muscles and our physiology and our breathing capacity, VO2 uptake and so forth, um, if we do the appropriate exercise. So I'll stop there. Hopefully that's a thorough enough and yet um, uh, not uh, unduly uh, uh, deep, uh, uh, not deep, but a uh, thorough description. Uh, it was fantastic. Is there an analogy that you use to describe the human brain? I, I've heard many different analogies, and it's, it usually varies depending on the specialization of the individual who's giving it. 
Um, I've heard battery. I've heard you know an, an ener- ener- energetic entity that sends and receives signals. What analogy do you prefer? Interesting. So the, I mean, it's tough to come up with a with an analogy, and I love analogies. So that so this means I'm uh, you know for the following reason, which is that and people like to throw out these buzzwords like the brain is the most complex thing in the universe, and you know that's true. Okay, um, <laughs> and uh, but that doesn't help, right? Uh, it just says it's, it's a complicated problem. So for for me, I actually I prefer to in, in the world of neuroscience we we refer to people as lumpers and splitters. Splitters like to make things really complicated and not let anything be its own entity, or everything is its own entity. Not let anything get lumped with something else that it might be a little bit dissimilar from. You know, so those are the splitters uh, and the lumpers. Sorry, I meant to say, but and the lumpers like to put things together in kind of more simple frameworks. I suppose I'm a, a bit of a lumper. Um, so an analogy for me would be that you know people like to compare them to computers. It's a map. I think it's it's a map. You know, if you want to get someplace with your Google Maps or what or your MapQuest, you, you put in your destination, you put in your origin, you put in your destination, and you get there. It's I would say that the brain can be most accurately described as a map, and all the information in that map, the Google Maps that is your brain, if you will is dependent on things that there's some basic basic things like there are roads and turns and stops but there are but the physical layout of the map is etched during development depending on your experience the only difference is it's a dynamic map you can make new roads new connections between things so it, if i had to give a kind of metaphor or analogy i would say that it's a highly dynamic map not unlike google maps except that you have control over where the roads are. I like that. What does what does the saying neurons that that wire together fire together mean to you? Yeah, great. I, I spent the early part of my career working on this problem. Um, you know, that saying was initially um, stated by a guy named Donald Hebb, who was a psychologist in Canada. He was um, really interested in how animals uh, learn, and he posited that if a, two neurons fired often enough together in synchrony that that connection would become more likely to fire together later, even without a pairing of the sort of stimulus and response that led to their initial firing. All that is a lot of word jumble to say, if you do something a lot, you lay down neural circuits that are really good at doing that thing. So for instance, I swam a lot when I was a kid, put me in a pool and I'll just start swimming. You know, the cells that fired together, wired together. Now fire, the fire part for the, those, this may be obvious to some, but for those of you that don't know, you know, neurons, in work through electrical signaling and chemical signaling. But when they fire, it does the, the signals, electrical signals between neurons. That's how they communicate with one another. So fire together, wire together simply means that if you do something a lot, especially during the early stage of your life, in particular from age about three, and these could be things that you experience also, from age three to about age 15 or 20, the your brain circuits are customized to, to engage those thoughts and behaviors much more easily than had you not performed them earlier. And conversely, if you want to do something new or learn something new as an adult, it's much harder. The best example of this is language. A young child can learn many languages and speak them without an accent for the rest of their life. If I try and learn a new language now, I'm almost certainly going to carry an accent in how I speak the language, and it's much more difficult. Same for learning a musical instrument or a new motor skill. Now, the one thing that's kind of nice to know 
is that you can learn new things. And if I may, I'll just, I could talk about how, how one does that. So fire together, wire together during development. It's very easy to get neurons to wire together. The brain is in a state of hyperconnectivity. Almost everything is weakly connected to everything. And then over development, you etch in circuits. You create circuits where there are very strong connections between only a few of those neurons. And you get very good at a few things. And that's what you see. Now, but the critical period is a very useful framework to think about if you're young or if you're not young or you're somewhere in the middle for the following reason, which is we know in particular from work of a now colleague of mine, Eric Knudsen at Stanford, that for instance, you can, developing animals can learn things very fast and they'll never forget them in the same way that you can learn, kids come home from school learning 10 new words, 30 new words, sentences, structure, just incredible rapid learning during development. Very hard to recapitulate later in development or in adulthood if you haven't done that to, to, to do that. However, Eric did these beautiful experiments using barn owls of all things, um, adjusting their visual auditory world. And I won't go into the details now for sake of time, but they're just beautiful classic experiments in which he realized that if the animals were highly motivated in other words, if they needed to learn some new task in order to eat their food or to eat at all, they could learn just as fast as they did when they were youngsters. And so, for instance, if I put a gun to your head and I say, look, tomorrow, conversational French, or I'm blowing your head off, you're highly motivated. You might be so panicked that you might actually, it might inhibit your learning because you don't want to freak people out too much or it's hard to learn. But when you're highly motivated or you have a strong incentive, it's clear that the brain can engage a lot of plasticity. And plasticity just refers to the ability to change these fire together, wire together contingencies. So neuron A normally triggers neuron B. That could be one form of learning, say speaking English. I'm vastly oversimplifying it. But if you now need to learn French, neuron A triggering neuron C would be something that you, you know, if I say learn French for our trip to France, I've said that, you know, many times, uh, my, my partner and I have discussed this, you know, oh, let's learn a new language, but we, never, we don't do it, right? But if, if you're survival depends on it, you can bet you're going to learn quickly regardless of age. So that's one thing that's very important to understand, that the brain early on is designed to learn many, many things quickly, and then, you're, and then fewer things over time. The other thing that I just want to mention, this is, is just something about the animal kingdom, which is really incredible, is people often say, you know, what's different about us than, say, a dog or a honeybee? And the, one of the, there are many things that are different, but one of the fundamental things that's different, and I find this very, just, just a fascinating idea in terms of thinking about how the brain works. But one thing that's just absolutely true is that the length of the critical period, the duration of the critical period in humans is extremely long. We can learn things our entire lifespan if we're motivated. And even in childhood, even if you're a lazy person, you're going to learn a lot of things. A honeybee learns to do the things that a honeybee needs to do very quickly, even relative to its lifespan, and then just does those things. And one, you know, can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's generally true unless they're highly motivated. And the, a dog up until about eight months, you can teach it all sorts of things. And then the window kind of closes. I mean, it's a very short window relative to their lifespan. And so humans, the human brain has evolved to adapt to different places and things. I mean, we've traveled across oceans. We develop clocks. We develop spaceships to take us into outer space. And the duration of the critical period and this idea that you can imagine things that don't exist yet are really what have defines our brains as human and are what... Uh, ensure us and give me confidence that when people talk about, you know, a consciousness shift or that humanity won't look the way it does, you know, in 20 years as it does now, that's absolutely true. We're evolving as a species right now. How long is the critical period in humans? 
Great question. Nobody knows for sure. It's clear that for language acquisition and motor skills, you're best off trying to acquire those things. I always tell you know my students, even in university, I teach big university courses. I say, learn an instrument, learn second languages. Trust me, take it from me. I didn't do those things. A little bit of Spanish on the side, but uh, gosh, I wish I had I'd, uh, taken more languages and learned a musical instrument. Uh, I would say up until about 20, you can learn quite a lot, um, and then it becomes harder. But as I mentioned before, you can always learn new things. Um, and there's carryover. If you were somebody who... Uh, did a lot of cycling, you might find it easier to go into, well, cycling is, a, is in a, perhaps a good example. Um, if you did a, one form of dance, for instance, when you were younger, if you learned how to do salsa dancing, and then as an adult, you decided to take up tango or a different form of dance or modern dance, there's some crossover of, of early learning. And so that can occur late into one's life. What's really intriguing about the critical period is that there are these few examples of people that seem to be highly motivated to learn throughout their lives and who have an easier time doing it. And there seem to be two or three general principles that allow that to happen. People talk about beginner mind. You know, kids are perfectly happy, not just sucking at stuff, not being very good at it, because they don't expect to be any good at it. As we get older, we expect to perform. And this is some of the concern that's happening out there that you read about, which is that we're the pressure to be special early on or specialized, which is just a simple way of saying special. And kids are are learning specific things at the expense of many other things, you know? Um, so it's clear that early on you can learn a lot of things, but that there's something about childhood that makes it easy to learn. So what is it now? It could be that there's some chemical or some soup floating around the brain early and not later that if you took a pill, you could learn. And I'm very interested in these so-called um, plasticity drugs and there, but there it's very, and there is some interesting work being done there, but it's very unlikely that it's going to be one molecule or one gene or one substance that you're going to take and suddenly you're going to have the critical period open again. Uh, That's just not going to happen. That's not the way the brain works. But there is something really interesting about certain people who've been noted throughout history who had a tremendous ability and incentive to learn. Richard Feynman would be a good example, the famous Nobel Prize winning theoretical physicist, famous for bongo drumming naked on the Caltech roof for learning all these interesting things about music, for yet a number of other proclivities, which nowadays would be considered very politically incorrect. But nonetheless, he had this incredible spirit about learning. He didn't have a problem being a beginner, and then he would excel very quickly. And so some of it is accepting being a beginner, enjoying being a beginner, not worrying about looking good, right? One of the most common human fears is fear of looking bad in public. If you're going to go learn tango, at 30, trust me, you're going to look bad for a while, but what, but you'll get it. You know, I was always a slow learner, but I knew that once I had something, it was mine and I owned it for life. That's kind of, some people learn very quickly, some people more slowly, some people retain better than others. So there's a huge variation. But the thing I'd like to pinpoint is this desire to learn, the willingness to be a beginner, but especially the notion of play. And so there we can really take a lesson from the animal kingdom. All animals during development play, kittens play puppies play. Dogs, you can get them to play, but they become more serious and kind of, you know, they don't, you know, we all love puppies in this kind of playful nature. If you watch that beautiful um, Planet Earth series that was narrated by David Attenborough, and I think it was by Susan Sarandon in the US, but either one shows essentially the same thing. There's a lot of beautiful examples of ducks playing and animals, weasels playing. Play during development 
is designed to teach social interactions between species and to teach them how to hunt and how to learn. So they're learning motor movements, jumping all over, hiding, diving, um, you know, flipping over. They're learning their, their motor and their cognitive capacities, putting them in somewhat risky scenarios, but not so risky that they endanger their, their own life. And parents play an important role in that too, of course. So a playful spirit is the, you know, without sounding too new agey, is one of the most useful things that adults can do. And I notice this too. If I sit down to write a grant, and that's a big part of my life, raising money, I have one mindset about it, which is I love writing grants. This is fun. No one put a gun to my head, but I need to get this done. And I'm going to make it a game in my head. It's, it's a game. I'm going to see how well I can do this. Most people carry a ton of stress. It makes it very hard to learn when you're highly stressed. So you want to be motivated with a kind of playful spirit about it. So the, the phrase I always use, which seems to work best when you look at very high-level athletes or very high-level performers in the, in the entrepreneurial or the scientific or the finance world is you got to keep things in perspective and have fun, but you have to give them your all. So it's that very thin you know, knife-edge uh, you know, walk that you have to do where you have to get be serious about it but not take yourself too seriously because learning is engaged when you go back to that developmental state of playfulness inside. And so even when the outcomes are very important, money, career, uh, sometimes even life or death, there's that element of calm and fun that comes with it. And so there's something, and, and when I talk about this, I'm not talking about it in psychological terms. There are literally states in your brain, meaning neurotransmitters, hormones, and circuits, cells that are active that are engaged when you think, all right, this is going to be fun. Let's make it play. Or if I tell you, hey, this is life or death. Do this right or it's all over. Two very different kind of brain states. And I think one of the really exciting areas in biohacking, whether or not psychological, pharmacological, or both, is going to be how can we very quickly, how can as humans learn to put ourselves into states very quickly? People that do this, athletes do this, hypnotists know how to do this to us if you, uh, you, know, if you follow that kind of logic. So, um, long-winded answer to a very simple question, uh, but if you want to get good at learning things forever, learn how to be playful about it, do it as best you can, but enjoy it, and pick an incentive, be, be motivated. It's pretty crazy that you gave that analogy because this was two months ago now. I was with a client who's a neurologist with rheumatoid arthritis, and we were down in the gym, and there ended up being... Um, a homicide where someone uh, gunshots rang out and another person was killed. When it went down, I, I grabbed my client, I pulled her to the ground. I won't go into the whole story, but afterwards she asked, uh, pretty much everyone else ran out of there and we were unable to run because she couldn't physically run. So I stayed with her and, and helped her hide and covered her up. And she asked me afterwards what was going through my head when, when it, it all happened. And the first thing, oddly enough, that went through my head was, wow, I thought a gunshot would be a lot louder this close. And then the second thing was, all right, um, make it like a game. You're basically in a video game right now. And the, the objective is to stay alive. And that mindset helped me to stay calm and focused in, in that situation. And I, I don't know why my brain went there, but that was the first thing that came to mind when you were talking about walking that edge between having fun and, and, and staying focused, but giving it your all. It's great that you were able to do that. It says something, I, I think, very fundamental about your, your psychology and your physiology, which is it probably says that um, 
there's something about your adrenal activation, which is uh, very much under control uh, where you can keep your consciousness when, you know, a lot of people, something like that happens and they either freeze or they completely panic. I mean, the panic reaction is huge. I mean, this is, so that's impressive. I mean, you'd be well suited for, you know, high, high stress endeavors, right? Where people's lives are at stake, um, like, like surgery or, or, you know, or, or um, special operations or uh, firefighting. So the, these, you know, I mean, it's, it might be worth mentioning that, you know, if you look at states of human behavior or brain states of human emotion or cognition and, be, and how they relate to behavior, you know, we like to think about our brain as really nuanced, but actually it's not really like the volume dial on a stereo or on your, well, nowadays, you know, on your computer where, there, where it's very graded, a lot of ticks from completely quiet up to very, very loud. You know, anxiety and arousal are the same thing, right? So if you think about alert Right, you think about alert and panic; those are you know along a continuum. So, or unconscious, alert, aware, panicked. Right. So there, and so our brain operates in in more or less in states that are that sort of snap into place. And the fact that you were able to keep a level of clear cognition means that you weren't in a panic state. That's impressive. The, you know, so much of what we experience as misfortune or. Uh, unhappiness in humans, it relates to anxiety. It's, it's, it's perhaps worth talking about for a minute. You know that there's a saying, and it was actually not in exactly these words, but Freud said, you know, that anxiety makes children of us all. And, and, I, and it's absolutely true. You know, whenever I encounter someone who's very angry or very sad or is going through, or if you just observe somebody who's going through something very, very significant and it's clear they're very unhappy and unpleasant to be around, Almost always, they're they're highly anxious. They're scared about something. They're frightened. And these circuits for fear are very hardwired in the brain. And once they become active, it's a state. It's not something you just most people can snap out of. It takes some training to learn how to do. Likewise, the states that can control happiness and good cognition, um, well, good cognition, you know, sort of what we would all prefer the states we prefer to be in, those can be engaged in the same way. Although we're less good at knowing how to do that often, as uh, I think with the coach and um, great Tony Robbins, right? He says, you know, uh, paved roads to unhappiness uh, uh, and, you know, dirt roads to dirt roads to happiness. You know, it's, it's sort of true. Our brains as an adaptation device have been developed mainly to protect us from fearful things. It's also very hard to extinguish fears. Very easy to learn new things, hard to extinguish fears. So learning to control your own anxiety, whether or not it's through meditation or exercise and learning to recenter yourself, so to speak, in one form or one healthy form or another is what drives so much of human desire and behavior. We want to get out of that state. And the other part of it is I, I sort of find it ironic because I've been involved in uh, martial arts for a long time. And there's a saying there, which is uh, that fatigue makes cowards of us all, which is Vince essentially Lombardi, the same thing right? that, that, that Freud said. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, and so, but what, what that really underscores or what really all this highlights, I mean, I'm using examples of fear and anxiety, but we could easily be talking about more positive emotions like happiness, is that the brain, these, that lower, that first part that I described and that second part, the sort of lizard brain and the map part of your brain, it really sets states. So you either feel pretty good, ecstatic, kind of low, or like garbage. You kind of for areas there. And if it's really bad, people can become suicidally depressed, you know, so, you know, or they can become so euphoric that people can't even relate to them. Right. So, but it's not like there are 25 or 30 different variations of, 
and, uh, or graded states, as we say, or kind of between being miserable and being happy. We sort of flip into feeling pretty good or really happy or ecstatic if something wonderful happens. Is exciting is that what that means that these are very likely to be circuits that can be tapped into and eventually that we'll be able to control in very, very healthy and predictable ways, either through the use of pharmacology, technology, right? I mean, the, the idea of hypnosis or for using, um, using brain-machine interface to imagine waking up in the morning and some people are anxiety, they're anxious in the morning. They wake up and they just kind of have this high cortisol level. They're kind of anxious about things. It takes them a while to calm down. They benefit tremendously from dedicated practice and meditation. But that's also hard to do consistently over time for most people. Imagine if you could just put in your headphones and listen to a 10-second brainwave synchronizer that would put you into a state where you felt good and your anxiety was reduced. Really, all you've done is tick down your level of arousal. That is entirely possible, and that's going to be happening. I'm involved in that kind of work. Other people are, are generating mech- ways to do that. And in the same way that when you wake up in the morning, if you're hungry uh, and you're craving, uh, say, a high-protein breakfast or you're craving something to get your glucose up because uh, you were very active the night before, there are easy ways to do that. And the thing is there are a million websites and lists uh, and books and podcasts and ways um, now available, uh, everything from ketogenic diets to you know intermittent fasting, all wonderful things that I, I'm so glad that information is out there for people to, to vet. But we have far less information about how to control our brain states. And yet that is fundamentally what makes us human and what's important to us from a moment-to-moment basis. You brought up something really interesting along the lines of brain entrainment or frequency following response. And, and I was curious, before we get into the pharmacology, what are some things that you use, some tools, techniques to help bring your brain into a productive uh, state wavelength yeah great I, I appreciate you asking a question this is um uh exactly the area that i'm most interested in now and i think it's because i think it's a very exciting area where developments are coming really fast and where also for your listeners where there's a tremendous room for growth and new innovation um the brain is the the, the critical frontier uh, we're learning so much about how to hack body systems and so two things that I'll say, and then I'll answer your question, that sort of set the tone for what for my answer, the rationale for my answer. First of all, again, the brain is an organ like any other. It can be hacked and understood. And if you have a thought, you have to understand that that thought is the activity of cells in your brain. People get this, but they don't always intuit. They think that their thoughts have some sort of power that's more important than perhaps it is. For instance, if you did a heavy squat session yesterday or you went for a hard run and you wake up the next morning and your leg is twitching, your quadricep is kind of twitching, you don't look at that and say, oh, I should go for a run or I need to move my legs. You say you have a rationale. You say my leg is, you know, the muscle is fatigued in some way or is undergoing some recovery in some way. It's twitching. But if you suddenly have a thought, you're jealous, you're angry, you're happy, you're sad, those are just neural circuits twitching. Whether or not you engage or act on them is entirely dependent on your map of experience. And this is what things like therapy allow you to do or meditation. They allow you to intervene between your thoughts and the decision of how to respond to those thoughts. Whether or not your feelings have meaning or not depends on the story that you give them. In the same way that whether or not that your twitching muscle in your leg has meaning or not depends on whether or not you went for a run the day before. If my leg was twitching constantly and I hadn't done any exercise recently, I might be concerned. Okay, so in any event, so what do I do? Or deficient well, in magnesium. Or deficient in magnesium, exactly. So my, you know, I take this very, very seriously, this aspect of my life very seriously, because 
I'm an athlete and I'm an academic and I consider my brain, like, again, like any other organ that needs taken care of and I want to put it in an optimized state, which is, which is not to say I want to walk around like a zombie all day, unengaged with people and just this performance machine. Um, that's not it at all. In fact, I want to be engaged with the world and I want to engage with people in a way that's meaningful just as much as I want to accomplish certain things in my professional life. Okay, so I just, I'll just preface all this with saying that. So what I do is I wake up in the morning and I recognize my first thought of the day is always that my brain is now awake and in the same way that my body might be warming up before exercise. I'm wake, I, you know, I don't walk into the gym and just start you know, doing my thing. I, I generally realize that I need to warm up my brain. Okay, And so what I'm unwilling to do I immediately have a decision, and I've developed this practice over many years. I've been meditating since I was, say, 15 or 16. I received Someone gave me the book, John Kabat-Zinn's book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. It had a profound influence on my life um, and the way that I view the brain. So the first thing I do is I get centered around the idea that my thoughts are simply brain activity and to not give them too much weight because my brain isn't warmed up yet. Okay. The first thing I do is I take out a, sheet, a small sheet of paper, and if, if I need to, not always, I do a little bit of a data dump. If I had an interesting dream or what I thought was an interesting dream, I'll just sketch down some notes. I'm essentially just kind of clearing out the cobwebs. This would be akin to shaking out my limbs or doing some you know, loose calisthenics before doing some exercise. Okay? So I'm just kind of shaking out the things. Sometimes something interesting comes up during that time that I might take note of later, and that's useful to write it down. But I, I either type into the iPhone or the audio portion of the iPhone, whatever system you have um, for capture, as they call it, I'll put something down. And then the first thing I do every morning in, in a dedicated way, which is quite hard I, still to this day, it takes an immense amount of discipline, is to separate myself from whoever's around and to go, even if it means just going into the bathroom, and I do just five minutes of breathing meditation. And I, you know, this notion of doing 30 minutes or 40 minutes, that's great. And, you know, hats off to anyone who can do it. But I do this before seminars. I've done this on airplanes. I do this. It doesn't matter. I, I do this. I do this. I've, I've even done it at dinner parties. I'll disappear in the bathroom. Five minutes. I set my iPhone. I close my eyes. I don't sit on the floor. I try to make this practice as easy as possible. And I simply do, I try and count breaths to 10, just following my breath in and out of my nose or in and out of my, in my nose and out my mouth. I don't do anything very sophisticated, but I have one thought, if you will, the entire time, which is to write, remind myself that my brain is an organ and that it's sitting in my head and that I'm not my brain. My brain isn't me, that we're sort of one in the same. Sam Harris has talked a lot about the kind of higher level consciousness and philosophy, this stuff, very interesting ideas. But I just get centered around the idea in the same way that I might concentrate on my heartbeat and just think about that my heart is this organ that's pumping blood through my body. I find that that one simple practice of five minutes a day, and it is five minutes, I wait for the buzzer to go off, and I don't berate myself if my mind drifts, I don't try and do anything except focus on my breath and get behind my eyes, so to speak, and realize I've got this brain that's controlling everything, that I have a nervous system, and that that nervous system controls what I want to do in, in my days and in my life and that day in particular. For me, I find having done many, many different forms of brainwave synchronization, meditation, hypnosis over the years, uh, in addition to many other things, that, that that single practice of five minutes has a tremendous value in allowing me to create a gap between stimulus and response. That is, if something stressful happens during the day, I don't immediately engage in the anxiety response. To engage my planning machinery, to sit down then and you know, maybe write out what I need to do for the day or the critical tasks. Um, so that's, 
you know, any number of different things just sort of cascade into place after, after that. So if I can recommend anything to your listeners, it would be get centered around the idea that your brain is an organ that needs some early, taking care of early in the day. Sometimes I'll do a second session later in the afternoon, but five minutes is immensely powerful. And it's a consistency thing. You know, they always say anyone can do five minutes. It takes an immense dedication to stay focused on meditations. That's the number one thing. Okay. Um, now, I do believe that other states are very important. Um, so I'm, we could do a whole long discussion. I realize it can be a little long-winded. That's the, no, the I, I, I'm, I'm enjoying it greatly. I'm fascinated. Okay. Okay. That, the, yeah, that was jokes. Uh, you know, that, that the, uh, the PhD will do that to people, right? You get this right. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, I like uh, it. I'm going for, I'm trying to be succinct, but, um, the, uh, please interrupt me at any time if I'm getting long winded. The, um, you know, I, I pay a lot of attention to my nutrition, supplementation and exercise. I, I'm somebody who needs a lot of physical movement. Um, so in the morning, generally what I'll do is sit down and write. Uh, I'll do my writing work. I'll take care of email and, and work, but I'm conscious as I go, I think in part because of that early five minute session of whether or not I'm carrying a lot of tension whether or not I'm doing things from a place of joy, whether or not I'm doing them from a place of stress. If I get something, a stressful email, uh, whether or not I'm being reactive in my responses, I, there's just something about that five minutes that sets this consciousness or this awareness of whether or not my brain is being engaged from a place that I would like it to be engaged from or whether or not I'm being driven from another source. And you know, there's so much positive psychology literature out there. I don't want to I'll probably misquote or, or misattribute um, who did what, but it's absolutely clear that the best performances in our life, the best creativity, whether or not you're an entrepreneur or whether or not you're an athlete or an academic, doesn't matter, come from a place of where you're enjoying what you're doing. You're motivated, but what, you're enjoying what you're doing and not from a place of fear or stress or constriction. And so I try and stay in that zone as much as I can. I take breaks. So I'm very much just like an exercise. I believe in cycling, work, and rest. Um, there's a wonderful book. I forget the title now. I can look it up quickly from Tony Schwartz, um, which had a profound influence on um, my career and life. Um, uh, I can look it up. But the Tony Schwartz book is essentially, um, if you'd like, I can look it up now. Um, I forget. Uh, sorry, I it's profound, but so profound I forgot. Um, he, he's an interesting guy. Tony Schwartz, I've never met him. Um, but he wrote something, he runs something called the Energy Product. I have, uh, pro, uh, Energy Project. I, I have no affiliation um, to, to him, financial or otherwise. Oh, right. The book is by Tony Schwartz. It's called The Power of, of Full Engagement. And it really just um, derives principles from physical training of where you, and applies those to mental training, where you engage in a behavior like taking care of email or creative writing or entrepreneurial work for about, 60 to 90 minutes, and then you take a break of 15 minutes or 20 minutes or so where you get kind of wordless and mindless and do something kind of physical, and then you go back to it, not just trying to drill through your day. That book had a profound influence on me. Incidentally, Tony Schwartz had written the book with Donald Trump, uh, The Art of the Deal, and then had this kind of actualized moment where he uh, started working on things that were, he wrote the book, What Really Matters, Searching for Wisdom in America. These are books that have, are run from very deep, um, and very profound concepts to very practical application. Again, I've, I've never met him, have no, no association with him, but the powerful engagement for me was just in a, an incredible book which said, hey, look, I've always known this. I box in three-minute rounds. I take one-minute rest between rounds, and you know, I, or I'll go to the gym for 45 minutes. If you work out for two hours a day, unless you're on anabolics or something, which I'm not, it's very hard to recover from that over time. 
you know, unless you have superior genetics. And so same thing goes for cognitive function. So I'll do some dedicated practice. I set timers. I do some dedicated writing or work, and then I take breaks. And I do what, what um, I love the, the work that Martha Beck it, it talks about, um, where you know, going into wordlessness. So going for a run, um, extremely wonderful way to shut down that third and fourth tier of your brain, which is involved in planning. I refuse to listen to audiobooks while I run. I don't even listen to music most of the time while I run. I want my brain, I want those low-level circuits the ones that are involved in generating motor patterns and breathing and that my subconscious just sort of drift up into the top. I almost always finish a run with an idea or a concept because a new idea or concept that I'm excited to implement in my professional life it could be a scientific uh, idea. And that's because I think what I've allowed to happen is for my subconscious to well to the surface without imposing a lot of information. So those are the big biohacks for me. Five minutes of meditation in the morning or focused breathing um, cycling my work rest is extremely important with across the day. Powerful engagement talks about how to do that in a really, um, really simple and, and yet very profound ways. And uh, yeah, I could talk about nutrition supplementation. I, I follow more or less the slow carb slash intermittent fasting slash ketogenic slash, uh, you know, Charles Polquin type, you know, stuff, which I think is wonderful. But there, we all know now that there are about a million different regimes that are going to not a million, but there are probably a dozen or more regimes that can work if you apply them steadily. And those do help with cognitive ability when you're in good shape. There's no question that vascular supply to the brain is extremely important. Um, my smartest colleagues that have had tremendous careers over time, and I'm talking about people that have pioneered brain science and will continue to pioneer brain science, almost all of them have some physical or, or musical activity that they enjoy to go into wordlessness, whether or not it's 10 tennis or running, very few of them box. I, I confess I'm one of the few neuroscientists that enjoy that. I do um, as well. <laughs> right. It's, uh, and we could talk about what it means to activate states that are involved in uh, aggression and fighting and learning to control your adrenal, adrenaline response. For me, that's been tremendously powerful in offsetting whatever deleterious effects of boxing might be there. Although you have to be smart. You know, it, it is head impact so that you know, you're, you're playing a devil's dance there. There's no question. So those are the main ones. So gr- a physical activity, understanding that physical activity and mental activity interface with one another. And I, I would say the last one, which I'm particularly excited about, um, is hypnosis. And um, hypnosis doesn't get a lot of play these days. Um, there are wonderful scripts for hypnosis available on YouTube for free. I don't have any financial involvement with any of this, but I've been using a lot of them over the last few years with tremendous success. Um, in shifting your subconscious state. So I'm very interested as, as a neuroscientist in how we can re- reprogram, let's say, the fire together, wire together plan of the brain to make life better, to feel better, to do more good in the world, to feel less anger um, when anger is inappropriate, to feel less anxiety, to engage more creativity. And hypnosis um, has been tremendously informative. Um, one, it's easy. I like it because you just sit back and listen. You know, meditation I find hard. It's like, it's like work. And I'm not somebody who shies away from work. I have a tremendous drive for, for work. I like the pain of deadlines. I enjoy all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I love hard physical labor. Uh, so it's, but meditation always feels like work. Hypnosis is great. You just kick back and listen to these scripts that people have written. And why, the reason I'm so interested in them is that 
they, I truly believe that they're tapping into something about fundamental about brain function, which is these first and second tiers of the brain, these primitive parts of the brain and these maps of the brain. They are using specific forms of language and brain state. They put you in what's called trance, which is basically just deep relaxation, not unlike the first stage of sleep when you suddenly find yourself kicking because you were having, and you wake up, you were having a dream about running. That's a lot of what hypnosis is. But one thing that I've, realized and that uh, a number of other people have, have commented on throughout history, frankly, is that everything is hypnosis. If you go into a beautiful restaurant and everyone's eating and dressed nicely and there's incredible food and music, you're hypnotized by that environment. There's a set of behaviors that fit with that environment that you suddenly start to engage in. And it'd be very strange to engage in behaviors like uh, meditation in the middle of the room or something, you know, or dancing if there isn't music for dancing. If you go into a dance club and music is playing everyone's dancing, you go into sort of a, a, a hypnosis. There's a power of suggestion from your environment and your brain is very susceptible to these things. People who are kind of a downer, people when everyone else is happy, they're kind of sitting in the corner bummed and people who are kind of crazy and delusional are the ones who are ecstatic and bouncing off the walls when everyone else is depressed. So, or when it's something somber like a funeral. So every, our brain loves to take an environment, assess it like walking into a concert a music concert, like a, like a, let's say rock and roll concert. There's a certain thing versus a symphony. There's a certain way that people walk and behave and dress. They take the context of how people are dressed, how they're speaking and how they're behaving. And you set a, an environment. And so the environment is actually hypnotizing you into certain kinds of behaviors and limiting other kinds of behaviors. You can break those molds if you choose. And that same thing in hypnosis, you don't have to follow those, those cycles, but, uh, or that those uh, suggestions uh, you still have conscious control, but there's something about the brain that it likes to be hypnotized. And so, so much of biohacking, what, what I think about is not biohacking in groups, it's biohacking ourselves. We sit down at our computer, often it's stressful. You get, you've got text messages, email coming in, maybe something's happening at home, maybe something happened the day before, you're dealing with some struggle, and you're essentially in a hypnosis of clutter and struggle. So the hypnosis that I'm constantly trying to put myself in is saying, okay, what do I want to do over the next hour? Do I want to create a chapter of text? Do I want to write a grant or review a grant? Do I want to speak to a student or speak to an audience of, of academics or the general public and convey a message? And so we sort of realizing that your brain really likes to lock into states and go there makes it very useful to saying, okay, I'm going to warm up my brain in order to lock into a particular state. In the same way that you probably prep yourself to go lift heavy weights at the gym in a very different way than you do when you warm up like you're going to go for a jog in the hills. So I don't know if that makes sense or not. Um, hopefully it does. But those are the biohacks. Hypnosis, short meditation, general state, you know, sleep is critical. you got to sleep well and all these health, health things. But those are the ones that I use a lot these days. Those, those are great. Just a, a couple deep discovery questions here. Where do you recommend people start in, for hypnosis? Is there a particular track or YouTube video that you really like? Yeah. So, um, again, no, uh, I've never met these people, no financial relationship. I feel like I need to, dis that's my disclosure is that I don't have a disclosure, but these days, you know, so many things are an advertisement. I just want to be clear. I am a big fan of the work that Michael Seeley, S-E-A-L-Y, um, has put on YouTube. These are just a number of different scripts. If you just put hypnosis Seeley, he's got a thing that you can subscribe to if you like. Um, and there's a huge menu of things like for confidence or for, He's got these ones which are sort of actualizing your higher self for um, lowering anxiety. And he's got a tremendous number of these. And 
it's important that you do one each day for about a week. I would do the same one each day. Um, they're deeply relaxing. I always feel like I've taken a two-hour nap after I do one. Some are about 20 minutes. Some go as long as many hours. But you know, And I do them while I sleep. I'll plug in while I sleep. That's uh, I find his is, and I'm sure there are others which are excellent. I know on on um, iTunes and there are other sources where you can purchase them. I've just gone for the free stuff because it's there and it seems very powerful. Um, and his, uh, I think his voice tends to put me in that trance state very quickly. And I will say, sir, some people are more easily hip- hypnotized than others. Um, this probably has anytime if you've ever been to a hypnot. Uh, uh, hypnotizing show, the hypnotist goes and looks at people's pupils. He's looking specifically at how reactive their pupils are to different um, levels of light. This is something my laboratory studies is how that pupil constriction is controlled. That pupil constriction and the size of the pupils as it goes, the aperture of your eye more or less for letting more or less light in is very closely linked to your arousal circuitry, how excitable you are or how calm you are. And so the hypnotist is actually trying to assay just your level of excitability at that moment. And they, they're trained to find that sweet spot. But these scripts that they have on YouTube, you lie back, put in the headphones or not. You know, I don't think you need headphones necessarily. And you just kind of zone out. The binaural beats thing is also very common. I've used the app Brainwave for a long time. Um, and when I travel, sometimes I can't get as much sleep as I like. So I'll just drop, I'll put in Brainwave when I'm on the plane. It puts me to sleep. Almost immediately, I wake up feeling refreshed. Again, no financial relationship to them. Just a great app that I find really useful. It's pretty interesting that you mentioned the correlation between uh, our ability to take in light and our arousal state. I, I was talking with uh, neuroscientist, Dr. neurosurgeon, Dr. Jack Cruz, and he was discussing the uh, interrelationship between full-spectrum sunlight and uh, tyrosine in the body, particularly as full-spectrum sunlight comes through the retina, it interacts with tyrosine to produce dopamine, which may have some parallels with what you talked about. People that have a, a, a greater propensity to take in light have higher arousal states, and, and it could be linked to the dopamine production and, and their neurotransmitter levels. Yeah, very interesting concept. I, I will say this allows me to put my hat on is I've been, you know, my main interest in neuroscience has been how the brain develops and the critical period. But I'm, if I have any specialty, it's in vision science. That's where the ophthalmology thing comes from. Your, the, you know, your eye is part of your brain. So it's a part of your brain that during development, that your retina got squished out into your eye socket. And so when people say it's a window to the soul, et cetera, I mean, it literally is part of your brain. That little light-sensing sheet at the back of your eye called the retina, just a little bit of brain tissue. It's about as thick as a credit card. And this is an absolutely miraculous device. It just by example, it... It hardly ever fails except in disease states. If you look through binoculars and you adjust them, it's because oftentimes you go the wrong direction, it gets defocused, then you go, oh, no, the other way, and you focus. Your eye never has that problem. Incredible. You look at something, you recognize it almost instantaneously unless you've truly never seen anything like it before, which is quite rare. That, But the eye-to-brain connection is interesting from a number of different standpoints, including the one you just mentioned, in that Part of our visual system is designed to bring in light to see things, to look at edges, to recognize whether or not we're looking at a dog, a cat, a tiger, or a bus, in which direction it's moving, step out of the way, and so forth. Much of our visual system and the the fact that we have light entering our brains or information about light entering our brains, no light actually enters the brain. Light hits the retina. The retina converts that light into electrical signals that the brain can understand. And so much of that is to convey things about time of day and that's the other biohack that I think people could benefit tremendously from. Very easy, completely free. 
which is to get a little bit of sunlight in your eyes each morning and each evening at dawn and dusk. This is tremendously powerful because there's a direct connection, a what we call a monosynaptic connection between the cells in the eye, they happen to be called ganglion cells, which collect the particular wavelength of light, the particular color of light, if you will, that's at dawn and at dusk, and they send it directly to your hypothalamus to set most of the rhythms in your body as they relate to dopamine production, food intake, glucose metabolism, serotonin and mood. Getting, you know, some people live in climates that, you know, that make it a little bit, um, or locations that make it a little bit more difficult to get this, but getting some bright light in your eyes early in the morning, ideally sunlight and late in the day, or just wonderful practice. You will see tremendous and you'll feel tremendous health benefits and physiological benefits from this. And the other one is that, and the new iPhone uh, operating system has an adjustment for this nighttime thing where filtering the blue light out in the middle of the night, getting on your phone or your computer in the middle of the night, something I'm guilty of doing quite a lot, is absolutely terrible because it starts resetting your circadian clock and throws all those rhythms out of whack as if you were jet lagged, but worse. There's an app, which is wonderful, I, again, no financial relationship, called Flux. so that's F.L-U-X, which is based on the biology of these specialized cells in the eye and filters out, makes your screen more yellow at certain times of day. It's really pleasing for the eyes. And yes, absolutely, I find that just a few minutes of sunlight and just taking the sunglasses off and getting some light in my eyes each morning is just tremendously beneficial. You hear all about these people who take, everyone's popping D3 now. Everyone's got their D3 levels up. That's great. But, you know, getting sunlight is perhaps even more important, frankly. I won't tell you not to do whatever supplement regimen you're on. But if there's any message that I can convey is that people, biohackers, fitness-minded people, entrepreneurs, people that care about their lives and well-being and the lives and well-being of others, pay as much attention to your brain and the state you're putting your brain in and ways of, of – and I think there just hasn't been as much information out there about how, you know, simple hacks – as you do for your body and your nutrition. And you'll find that everything in life is so much better because your brain is what controls all your motor movements, thoughts and behaviors and perception, et cetera. Yeah, that, that's fantastic advice. Would you say that the best way to get that sunlight is watching the sunrise and or the sunset without sunglasses or contacts? Or yes. is, there, is that how you do it? Yes. Provided I, often I won't catch sunrise as much as I would like to. I am an early riser, but not quite that early sometimes, um, and travel and stuff can get in the way, getting some light in your eyes early in the morning and late in the evening, provided that, you know, of course you don't have some preexisting medical condition that would be bad. There are certain people who have forms of macular degeneration where bright light can actually accelerate degeneration. So I wouldn't, you, you should talk to your doctor, of course, but light in the eyes is a tremendously powerful anchor. It's look, we evolved to be awake during certain times of day, not others, because it was dangerous to be awake at other, other times of, you know, in the middle of the night. And so much of our physiology is anchored around getting that, those photons as they are, which are you know, light energy, into your nervous system, triggering your nervous system, making it aware that you're awake now, you should be awake now, and then in the evening, slowing things down and not getting so much bright light in the eye, especially blue light, which it comes from the computer and the iPhone, which is just dreadfully bad in that it can reset your circadian clock. And that's why programs like Flux and the new um, uh, iPhone operating system has an adjustment for nighttime, much more pleasant on the eyes. So I think um, when you use that app, so I think that um, dawn and dusk are, are ideal. Um, 
my research, Stanford is famous for the sleep lab that William DeVent started. All the vision researchers, uh, many of whom are, are MDs and who care very much about their own health, you'll see them in the afternoon doing this kind of migration out to the side the labs and they just stand there, oftentimes talking, having conversations because they're academics and they're often talking. And while looking up, you know, obviously you don't want to stare directly at the sun, you burn your retinas out, but we all know you have a pain mechanism in place, which makes it painful when you're looking at too much light. That's your, your nervous system evolved that too. It's quite smart. Um, and getting some light in your eyes, I think everyone could enjoy tremendous uh, health and uh, psychological benefits from that. This, this is great. I'm having so much fun. I want, to, I want to be respectful of your time as well. I was hoping we could do three rapid-fire questions, and then I want to hear a little bit more about uh, your book that you're working on, because I'm very excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um, how many hours of sleep do you get a night? What time do you go to bed? What time do you wake up? I go to bed by 11, and I wake up by 7, oftentimes at 5 or 6. The I've noticed something very powerful, which is if I go to bed before 11, if I go to bed at 10, 10 p.m., for instance, or 10.30, I wake up at 4 a.m. feeling completely refreshed and ready to go. I really believe in this, you know, every hour before midnight is worth two hours after midnight. There's something about my physiology in particular works that way. I will answer for someone else. Of course, I have colleagues who wake up late and stay up late. And there, there is a genetic polymorphism, which is a, a genetic thing which makes people sort of advance phase sleep syndrome or delay phase sleep syndrome. So there's variation here, but early to bed, early to rise for me, tremendously powerful. I have to work at it. It's not a natural thing for me. There are a million reasons and many good ones uh, to stay up late. You know, it takes some discipline and nobody's perfect, but that's generally by 11, up by six or seven or so. That is, that is also my weakness in terms of discipline, discipline is getting the meditation in and getting to bed when I know I should. And I even have alarms going off that tell me to get in bed, and sometimes it's, it's difficult. But um, Magnesium will do it. If I take 400 milligrams of magnesium, yeah. I feel like I get hit over the head. You know? But you know, the life constraints that you know, create all sorts of uh, uh, things with, you know, with discipline anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, pharmacology. What are the most effective pharmaceutical drugs for improving brain function, and what do you currently use? So, okay, so first of all, I want to say I'm, I'm a PhD and trained neuroscientist, but I'm not a clinician physician, so you should talk to your doctor about any of these things. I, don't, I currently don't take any prescription drugs for enhancing or changing brain function. I, um, I, am, uh, I believe in setting a context and a state. And so that, you know, I could list off very quickly the supplements that I think are very beneficial and that have been shown in double blind placebo controlled studies to be, have a kind of antidepressant mood enhancing effect. The number one um, thing there is uh, high doses of of, of the omega-3s and omega-6s, you know, fish oil. I mean, in many studies have been shown to be as effective, especially during the winter months as things like uh, Prozac and things which have side effects, which are complicated. Fish oil, has certain side effects, but they generally, I'm willing to deal with a little bit of acne or some, you know, uh, you know, you can ask my, my, uh, friends and family about, about fishy, fishy smell or not. I don't think oh, so. They now yeah. have them. They now have them with these, um, lemon coat or lemon scent that, that prevents that. Um, probably speeds nerve nerve transmission may be involved in repackaging of neurotransmitters uh, and so forth. It just works. I, you know, it's one of those things that has a big effect. Um, I take a broad spectrum multivitamin in my first two meals of the day. I, since I follow a relatively slow or low carb diet, I also supplement with things like potassium. That's going to be important for neural function, 
you know, if you deplete your electrolytes, especially if you're exercising and sweating a lot, your brain isn't going to work well. Um, big believer in the MCTs and the, you know, coconut oil um, for the energy and ketogenic uh, effects. Uh, I'm a big believer in optimizing hormone states. Uh, I'm 40 years old. I feel even better than I did when I was 30 or 20. And I think it's, it's owes to the fact that I spend a lot of time and focus attention on nutrition, supplementation, exercise. I mean, my recovery is much improved, especially with the, the fish oil. I supplement with things like glutamine. Um, I take a good quality greens product. Um, and, you know, and I eat well. I eat grass-fed meats and vegetables, and I'd rather not eat than eat garbage, you know. And I do practice one day a week of intermittent fasting, that sort of thing. Now, in terms of supplementation specifically for brain function, I find that grapeseed extract is very useful. Um, there's mixed data on this, but in my experience, that's very useful, and I tend to chart my own data pretty carefully. Um, a lot of people benefit from ginkgo. I don't. Uh, it's not something that gives me headaches, but that, I tend to be hypersensitive to medication um, in that, in, and some forms of supplementation. I generally can tell when something's working or not pretty, pretty quickly. So there's a whole set of regimes. I'm sure your podcast is covered in other forms, and there's resources on the web for optimizing hormone states. Um, but specifically for neurotransmission, most of your ability to think clearly, to engage in cognitive states that are useful and productive are going to be from keeping cortisol at bay. So, you know, so two grams of vitamin C in the morning is known to blunt cortisol. I do that. Keeping that meditation practice regular will blunt your cortisol and reactivity. If you want your cortisol through the roof and you want everything to crash, you know, just like if you want your whole body to crash, you would smoke some cigarettes and down alcohol. Not that I, I'm preaching what people should do. You should also you know, live your life how you want. But if you want to physically crash yourself as an athlete, there are many things you can put in your body to do that. If you want to mentally crash yourself as a human being, there are many things you can do to do that, including stress. And you know, a note about that, I think anytime I do experience stress, and of course I do, like anyone else, I hate traffic, I'm frustrated about you know, the various things throughout the day, converting that to using that fourth tier of your brain and saying, you know what, I'm actually just really awake and aroused and I'm really, I'm really like positively emotional about this can convert the stress response into something more uh, enthusiastic, so to speak. So keeping cortisol at bay is the number one thing. Now, the future of brain science, practical application of brain science, in my opinion, unless you're talking about disease states, are nootropic drugs, smart drugs that are going to make your brain operate like it did during the critical period, enhancing mood and cognitive function. And there I should disclose, before I say anything more about this, I have so much of an active interest in this that I'm, I am an early investor and have a, a role in what's called the Neurohacker Collective, which um, was just launched recently, which does sell some products that are um, involved in, that are related to neurohacking and creating optimal brain states for various things. But it's also going to be a very useful website for vetting um, sort of lists and uh, of both research studies and practical applications of all sorts of neurohacks, including meditation, pharmaceutical, um, you know, FDA approved drugs that are, you know, it's hard to find that information in a single database. And that's why, uh, to be honest, that's why I'm most excited about Neurohacker Collective. It's put together by some uh, really brilliant guys from uh, Southern California, Encinitas in San Diego, with investors in the Bay Area and elsewhere. Um, and Neurohacker Collective is based around the idea of trying to hack consciousness, trying to hack the human brain from a nutrition supplementation standpoint, but also behavioral standpoint, and trying to get all that information in one useful place. So for no other reason, you might want to check it out just for educational purposes. Yeah. Um, rather than, yeah. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, 
the racetams, is that something that you play with? I, I Personally, I go back and forth. I've had good experiences. I've had not so good experiences, especially trying to keep choline levels in, in balance when on paracetam or oxiracetam or anoracetam. Is that something that you use or no? Uh, not something that I do personally. Um, I, you know, choline, one thing that's really uh, clear um, is that, you know, as, as you mentioned, choline function. I mean, there, there is going to be that category of supplement or, or drug even that is going to be possibly innocuous, possibly beneficial. Um, that, that might fall into the category of, you know, we need more data. Um, remains to be seen. I, I, don't, I don't use it. But that's not because I necessarily think it's a bad thing. I just haven't, um, I haven't felt a need at this point. Tell us a little bit about uh, your book, what it's called. I love the title and, um, and, and what, what you're working on. Yeah, so a um, little preface. Uh, you know, I've spent the last 20 years in research laboratories and now and for the last you know, 10 or so running a research laboratory um, doing, uh, you know, as best we can, highly controlled mechanistic studies of how the brain works. And, um, but I have an active interest in neuroscience in general and study the field as a, as a topic. And I'm very interested in communicating neuroscience to the general public in a way that might be useful to them or hopefully useful to them um, in terms of understanding how our brains work and enhancing our, our abilities uh, and our ability mainly to improve the world, uh, to cure disease, live better lives, and, and, for, and to help each other. And um, the title of the book might, uh, on first blush, uh, you know, um, run counter to that message. Uh, the book is called Fight, Fuck, Feed, and it's about how the neurobiology of primitive drives shapes so much of what we do. And, um, you know, maybe now after having heard the, the other things we talked about today might make uh, a little more sense, you know, that understanding that our brains evolved primarily and first to control these very primitive drives, keeping us safe, so engaging the fear response, engaging the aggression response to eat, to reproduce, and to survive, that's what our brains are exceptionally good at. Our brains are less good at being creative, being happy, and uh, making sure that we're in an optimal state all the time. And that's where the biohacks come in. And so Fight, Fuck, Feed is, despite the title, is intended to educate the general public on how the brain is fundamentally built and has evolved and how they can uh, take advantage of that knowledge uh, in their own lives in order to better equip themselves to do and accomplish whatever it is that, that they want to do, provided, if I have any say in it, that it's to enhance the world and well-being as opposed to, uh, to create more um, havoc, which is obviously not what we want. And when are you, when are you planning to share that with us? Yeah, so uh, my hope is that the book will be out by 2017. It's, um, in the meantime, I'm going to be speaking, doing a, a fair number of public speaking gigs. Um, the one that's coming up uh, soonest is uh, at the A-Fest or Awesomeness Fest, which is being held in Mykonos, Greece next month in May. Um, but there will also be some other lectures and talks in the Bay Area and, and uh, hopefully in New York City as well. Those are in the planning stages. I'd uh, be happy to update um, uh, people. I have a laboratory website which relates to my academic work, which is Huberman Lab, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B.com. And there you'll find anything that relates to my academic work, scientific published papers and so forth, um, affiliations uh, uh, and, and whatnot. Um, but then uh, the 
other stuff, all the stuff related to public speaking and to Fight, Fuck, Feed will be on its own independent um, website fairly soon. Uh, you'll be able to find it um, at fightfuckfeed.com or uh, at uh, drneuroscience.com. Uh, um, and those are in the works and um, should be ready soon. And um, I'd be excited to hear from, I should just mention that I'd be excited to hear from many of your audience. I get many, many emails asking questions about um, brain science and health, and I'm always uh, eager and, and, and honored to, to receive those questions. I do my best to uh, respond to them in a, in a timely fashion. Well, Andrew, this is, it's been an honor talking with you today. I've had a blast. It's been insightful, and um, you shared so much. I, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time, and uh, I know you're a very busy man. Thank you. Great. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by PrimalBlueprint.com, which I have shopped at for years. I love a number of their products, and I have two to recommend right off the bat. Number one is perhaps the condiment I recommend most often to new clients, and that is their Primal Kitchen Mayo. It's made with avocado oil and cage-free organic eggs. Best of all, it's free from soy and canola oil, which are usually genetically modified and sprayed with nasty herbicides like glyphosate. It's one of the few things I used to really miss when keeping my nutrition dialed in, and now I don't have to anymore. It's amazing. You will thank me. Primal Kitchen Mayo. The second is their dark chocolate almond bars made with grass-fed collagen, Turkish almonds, and pumpkin seeds. These are delicious and addicting. I'm a closet fat kid, so I usually buy them when I'm in a position to consume the entire 12-bar box in a matter of days, which is usually how things unfold. The collagen in these bars has been shown to reduce joint pain, improve sleep quality, support skin, hair, and nail growth, and enhance digestion. Many female clients report a more youthful appearance and fewer wrinkles. I love them, and I think you will too. So all you need to do to give them a try is go to primalblueprint.com. That's P-R-I-M-A-L-B-L-U-E-P-R-I-N-T.com. And you can choose one of those two products, Primal Kitchen Mayo, Dark Chocolate Almond Bars, or more than a dozen other products, and Biohacking Secrets approved books, products, and recipes. It's that easy. Go to primalblueprint.com and grab some delicious, healthy food. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Millennial Health Systems. Millennial Health Systems engineers innovative and practical light hacking tools for enhancing energy, detoxification, boosting immune function, improving focus, accelerating recovery, and much, much more. They're the brains behind two of my favorite light biohacks, and I've been using them for a long time now myself and with my one-on-one clients, the Theralumin and the Spectrumite. The Spectrumite utilizes frequency and color combinations delivered through 40 high-powered LEDs to increase mitochondrial function, the energy powerhouses in our cells that produce ATP, boost nitric oxide production, and encourage a state of relaxed focus. It's based on NASA research, which found this type of low-level laser therapy, abbreviated LLLT, greatly enhanced the natural wound healing process and more quickly returned patients to a pre-injury and pre-illness level of activity. It's a one-stop shop for all of your light hacking needs. I use both the Spectrumite and the Theralumin every week and consider the Theralumin a cornerstone of the programs I put together to help some of my clients recover from chronic fatigue and other conditions with infectious causation like Lyme disease. The Spectrumite is controlled via Wi-Fi using a smartphone application that's intuitive and easy to use. And the Theralumin has literally two buttons, on and off. It's very simple. 
You can check out both products at millennialhealthsystems.com. That's millennialhealthsystems.com. Two L's and two N's in millennial. And right now, my listeners, you guys, will get $100 off the Theralumin and $50 off the Spectrumite. Just mention the special code BIOHACKS, B-I-O-H-A-C-K-S, to get that discount. This episode is brought to you by Bioptimizers. That's bioptimizers.com. And more specifically, there are two products that I use every day, Masszymes and P3OM Probiotics. Masszymes is a medical-grade enzyme formulation that increases your enzyme potential, allowing for optimal protein digestion and absorption necessary for growth. Additionally, the formulation cleanses your GI tract of undigested protein while improving energy and cognitive function, all the while reducing the resources needed for the metabolization of food. And less resources being allocated toward the metabolization of food by your body means more energy for you. Masszymes is the strongest proteolytic enzyme formulation on the market today, and at 85,000 HUTs, it contains more protease per capsule than any other formula. P3OM probiotics are a patented probiotic formula developed by one of the world's leading probiotic experts. P3OM uses a patented process to enhance L-plantarum's capacities, resulting in a new super strain that may be the most powerful probiotic developed. This probiotic is designed to help you combat viruses, retroviruses, and super bacteria. I use P3OM and Masszymes every day, along with a number of other probiotic supplements that I cycle, which is an important aspect of getting the best effect from your probiotics. So you never want to take probiotics. You never want to take the same probiotic every single day, and you never want to take the same amount every single day. So I am constantly cycling in different probiotics that I have found to be the most effective, changing up their dosage to keep the body adapting and constantly evolving. So you can save 10% on your first order of P3OM probiotics and masszymes by going to buyoptimizers.com. That's B I O P T I M I Z E R S dot com and entering discount code biohacks. That's B I O H A C K S at checkout. So once again, that's masszymes and P3OM probiotics, and you can save 10% on your first order at buyoptimizers.com with discount code biohacks.